Invasion of the Body Snatchers is an American science fiction movie originally released in 1956, and a more modern makeover was released in 1978. Both are fun movies. Invasion of the Prostate Snatchers, yes, Prostate Snatchers, is a book written by American Dr. Mark Schultz, a medical oncologist. As you might imagine from the title, the book is not favorable to prostate surgery. Reading from the book's Amazon page description, patients are too often rushed into a radical prostatectomy, a major operation that rarely prolongs life and more than half the time leaves them impotent. Well, it has been almost eight years since I chose prostate surgery. I chose surgery after careful considerations and many consultations in the U.S. and abroad in England. For the record, my prostate was not snatched. I was not rushed into it. I was not left impotent. And, without question, the surgery has prolonged my life. More of a footnote than a disclaimer, I have read the book, and I have also consulted with Dr. Schultz. Hello, and welcome to Prostate Cancer Lessons and today's topic, Choosing Prostate Surgery, with our guest, Michael Christopher. I am your host, Murray Keith Wadsworth. Michael, thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Let's delve right in. Common terms for this surgery are radical prostatectomy and RALP, R-A-L-P, an acronym for Robotic Assisted Laparoscopic Prostatectomy. Always find these to be a mouthful, Michael. And I was intimidated by the concept of a radical prostatectomy. Did those terms bother you or did you work through them? Uh, I had trouble pronouncing it for a while, but I'm, I, I'm an expert at it now. <laughs> Good for you. I think I'm still trying almost 10 years later. For our discussion, I did a bit of web searching to, to see what's out there today. Because I had done some consultations in London, England, I went over to the King Edward VIII's hospital. And on their website, they have this short statement, a robotic-assisted laparoscopic prostatectomy, or RALP for short, is an operation where the prostate gland is removed using a surgical robot, also known as a da Vinci robot. I do find that the use of the name da Vinci some interesting marketing. And I stumbled onto another website, Urology Nevada. I haven't consulted with them or spoken to them, but this is on their website and I'll read it. I think it's quite good. This is regarding RALP. Anticipated benefits include potential cure of your prostate cancer. When we do this operation, we make the assumption that the cancer is still in the prostate and it has not traveled out beyond its walls or to distant areas in the body. Despite all modern technology, there is no way to guarantee this before the operation. That's the end of the statement. That statement that there is no guarantee is true for all primary treatment methods. When we choose to treat this disease, we take certain risks, but obviously not treating has risks. Michael, did you have a good understanding that there was no guarantee that your surgery would get all the cancer? Well, honestly, it's part of it came from reading your book. I had gone to lunch with a friend of mine. I'm a Christian. He is too. And he prayed for me. And I walked out of there and I just, I asked God to kind of lead, lead the way. 
because I wasn't sure what to do. I mean, you come into the situation with, you get asked to make a lot of complicated medical decisions and you get to be your own advocate, but you, you need to educate yourself, I think. And so I came out of that lunch and I, I walked there and I saw a half price bookstore across the street. And I went over there and just wondered if they had any books on prostate cancer. And, and I found uh, your book. And it's kind of, uh, it's an inside family joke, but my kids call me Wolf. And so I saw that book and I said, oh, okay, well, this is the book for me. Bought the book and I, I started reading it. So that's when I learned, you know, the, the critical situation where the cancer is contained um, within the prostate. You're in a different situation than if it escapes. Good to know my, my book has made it to used bookstores. It's been eight years, Michael, since my route. And I continue to believe surgery was my best option for my first curative attempt. MPMRI imaging made it clear to the doctors of various radiation techniques that surgery was my best option with the fewest possible side effects risk. Then complete removal of the tumor burden was another benefit that I wanted, as well as how easily we can check PSA, prostate-specific antigen blood testing, after the surgery. Could you share with us your process for choosing surgery and how this has gone for you? I went to uh, a similar um, medical practice that you did, um, which is called Urology Austin. And as part of that process, they took me through options. Given the situation that I had, I was a candidate for a variety of different um, approaches. They have a different doctors that are experts in each one of those approaches. And so they basically had me talk with a surgeon um, and they had me talk with a radiologist. And, and I was able to ask other general questions. And so they recommended a book. I read that one. It's like it's basically kind of like the Bible of prostate cancer. And it's, a, it's a big book with a lot of uh, a lot of information in it. To me, your book was a, a better advisor for me because it kind of boiled things down and it uh, summarized certain things in the, you know that were choices. So um, I was lucky from the point of view that I had multiple approaches that I could take. And I was lucky that I had a, you know a urology group that was large enough to offer different approaches. And they did offer me the option of not doing anything. So um, they didn't advise it because um, there's, a, there's a measurement or a characterization of prostate cancer called the Gleason score, Gleason index. And that's like two numbers. And those numbers tell you about the, the relative severity of it. And they tell you um, whether they believe that it is localized or not. You can find out more about that all over online. But the Gleason score was sort of an indicator that it was in my best interest to take some kind of action. Did they do any other diagnostic methods on you like genomic testing or an MRI? They, they did. They did not do an MRI. So they did talk about and mention that I could get uh, genetic testing. Um, and I did pursue that. Okay, we had a bit of a technical glitch. Michael, welcome back. So interesting that you did not have an MRI. Why was that? 
Um, it was never it was never really offered to me. Um, and I don't I don't exactly know why. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it would have changed anything that I would have done. But uh, one thing I can say for sure in this situation is the more information you have, the better off you are. So you you did have some genetic testing. I I did. That was offered. Um, it was it was also not covered by insurance, which I have fairly good insurance. Um, but that that's considered somewhat um, uh, experimental, I guess, in their mind. Um, and so they offered that testing, and I knew that I could potentially be responsible for the whole cost. Um, <clears throat> I I did take that testing, and. I feel like it was an important part of the decision process that I made um, because when I got the results from that genetic test back, um, it was um, fairly clear that the uh, the situation that I had going on was more severe than would necessarily be indicated by just the Gleason score from the biopsy that I had. I had the what's called genomic testing that is not genetic. Genomic is, I think that's what I had, yes. Interesting that mine wasn't paid for either. And I did an appeal to my health insurance and they sent me a letter and said it will never be approved. And then a year later it was. One of the messages to men is we had to fight for some things. So after that testing result, you decided to go in and do the surgery? I did. Um, I did talk to I did talk to some other people, including you, because um, I ended up after I read the book, uh, I was kind of shocked and surprised that you were from a, a similar area where I lived. And um, so, anyways, I looked around on Facebook and I found you know you that you had a a presence there, and uh, I reached out to you and I talked to you. So. Um, you were one of the you were one of the components that I used in in making decisions. Um, but I I did I, I read the Walsh book I think is the the name of the the yes. it's the the author and he's considered an expert in the topic. He invented some of the processes that are used, not necessarily the robotic part, but just the general processes. Because you know twenty twenty five thirty years ago. Uh, it was a much more dangerous and serious um, surgery than what it is now. And so, so anyways, uh, his book was really good. And I read most of that book. Um, I'm a reader by nature. And so um, that book helped me too, because it helped me understand and it had pictures and um, they tried to write it in such a way that the layman could understand it. But, uh, you know, I actually think that your book is better for laymen, you know, understanding the general concept, not the medical side so much, um, but the, the general issues that are presented. Well, uh, thank you for the kind words. Walsh's book is, is an intense read. I did read it as well and, and found it helpful. What was your timeline from diagnosis to surgery? I know this concerns a lot of men. Mine was a year. So um, mine was less than that. Um, I really got the the the, the real diagnosis um, from the urologists uh, just around Christmas, uh, the New Year, 
of um of of 2021 um and so uh i i was maybe i I wouldn't say I rushed things, but I took it from the point of view that there was not much benefit from me waiting. And and the, the urologists were kind of like easy about it. They were like, you know, you can take time and think about this. And then fall when the whole thing had kind of started happening. And they they had actually been watching my PSA for a while, um, probably seven to eight months before that. They saw the first indication there was a problem. So then they waited three months. They did it again. They waited another three months and did it again. So it had been about six months uh, just by using the PSAs that they knew there was a problem. And the the rate of increase on the PSA was high enough that they were concerned. And that's when they had me do, you know, the, the, the core samples is what I call it, uh, the biopsy. Um, and so... Um, by right after Christmas, I, I was, uh, I knew that I had cancer. And so, um, I ended up having the surgery within, uh, about just under three months from the time that I found out. It's a reasonable timeline. There's a lot of discussion about it. Some men move quickly. I took the better part of a year. It turned out my surgery did not get it all. And... I can look back and fret that I didn't act sooner, but in a common sense thinking, I don't think it would have made a difference for me. Briefly on the biopsy, a lot of men are afraid of them. I've had two. There's a lot of bad press about them. I decided uh, since I was present for the birth of both of my children that it's nothing compared to natural childbirth. How did you fare with the biopsy? It was, I would say it was mildly uncomfortable and that's about it. I mean, I've had worse dental appointments than that, you know, and, and they, they're, they're kind of, I'd say they're good at it. They, they do these a lot. I was way more concerned about the results than, than the actual act of the biopsy. If I would have known everything then that I know now, I would have asked for an MRI guided biopsy. Um, Because as I've learned more since this whole process, um, it gives them uh, sort of a better indicator or, you know, it's like they have better eyes into what they're doing. If they don't use the MRI, from my perspective, they just take sort of a, I won't say a random sampling, but like a, a cross-section sampling. Um, so I think uh, my humble opinion is the MRI guided biopsy is the, is the ideal choice if you're going to have one. Uh-huh. But my, biop- my biopsy came back. Um, with just one area that, that showed cancer. So my, my Gleason score was above the point where I couldn't just, you know, just wait a while, but it was the lowest, the lowest point past the point where you could wait. What I learned about the image guided biopsies, and, and that's, that's a broad discussion with various doctors. I thought I had image guided biopsy and it wasn't as good as it could have been. What I experienced is when they do, and random is a good word to use, or a cross-section, the key is to hit the worst bits of the tumor so that they can get the most accurate Gleason score. Because my Gleason score was actually upgraded after surgery, upgraded. So I had a more aggressive 
cancer than we thought from my initial biopsy and the initial opinion. For our listeners, the the image-guided biopsy is different than the multi-parametric MRI. That's like an MRI of, of, a, of a knee or an elbow or something uh, that is not involved with the biopsy. I had both. Well, I had the multi-parametric MRI and somewhat image-guided, but the image-guided biopsy missed. But the MR, MPMRI to say that correctly, was was critical for us knowing the exact location of my tumor. When you went to, to choose your surgeon, there's a lot of talk in social media about having the best surgeon. The surgeon should only be from the top centers, or they should have done thousands of surgeries. I met with surgeons from two of the top centers in the country, and the one I actually chose in Austin had only done about 100 of these. And some people would say I was crazy. But I had great confidence, and I'm not overwhelmed by someone that has done a couple thousand of them. I'm not convinced they're necessarily any better. What were your thoughts on that surgeon selecting process? So I did. I did some um, some investigation, um, and so uh, I went to Urology Austin, and they have a few different choices. Um, the the person that ended up doing mine. Um, he was uh, a teacher for this type of, this type of surgery and he was young, relatively young for a doctor. Um, he had been involved in this. Uh, he was like the fifth person that had used this single port method. They call it SPA, I believe, but the, the robot, instead of having multiple hands, if you will, that, that go into your stomach. Um, it had one hand that went in and then little hands come out from that single arm, if you want to call it that. So he was, uh, he was quite knowledgeable about the process. He was rated as, as depending on, you can get ratings from different places, but he was rated as the second most experienced doctor in Texas um, for that particular type of surgery. Interesting. The morning of my surgery, the surgeon comes by and says hi and then leaves. My son was with me. He's in his was in his late 20s at the time. My surgeon was quite young as yours was. And my son said to me, he says, Dad, he'll be great. He grew up on video games. And I like that. So a couple other quick questions that I know men are hear about or worry about. One is the catheter after the surgery, terrible tube that helps us urinate. I was fine with mine. It didn't bother me. I actually had it come apart the first night and I, I called the hospital and the nurses told me how to put it back together. And then I carried around it and the little carrying device I put together for the next few days. When it was taken out, I was scared to death, absolutely scared to death. And it was a piece of cake for me. Uh, so I fretted over nothing. How was that experience for you, Michael? My doctor preferred to use, to go for two weeks after the surgery. And, you know, because I was reading all these books and, you know, being a self-advocate, I asked a question. I'm like, why two weeks? It's typically one week is what's recommended. And they're like, well, uh, your doctor thinks that he is being cautious and knows better. And, and so he went with the two week process. Um, and for me, the catheter was, I, I would say it was, it was challenging. Um, you know, it's, it's not 
that painful, so to speak. Um, it's it's more inconvenient and irritating. And, um, you know, I didn't have any serious problem with it as far as it coming apart or anything along those lines. But um, I'll tell you, I was in the parking lot a couple hours <laughs> A couple hours before my appointment was there, I, I was walking in the door the minute it was ready to come out. I was ready for it to be done. And um, the, it's funny because, the, the you know, I'm married, but the, the young woman that was going to do it was, you know, very uh, attractive. And I'm like, oh, geez, I don't know if this is what I want. Um, but I go in there and she was kind of good humored about everything. I'm sure she'd done it hundreds of times. And she was talking to me and she said, okay, I'm going to count, you know, from 10 to one. And she said, and then I'll do it. And so she starts counting and she got to about six and she, she did it right then. And I said, I thought you said you were going to, to down to zero. She's like, yeah, but then you'd be expecting it. <laughs> um, so, and you know, she kind of, she kind of made the situation um, lighthearted and uh, the removal was no problem. I, I would say that it was an irritation and, um, but you know, the grand scope of things, uh, I was up and around and, and doing things, um, within, you know, a day of the surgery, which looking back on it, it's kind of shocking that you can go through something that's relatively serious and, uh, but be back on your feet. And I, I I was working again, within a, within a couple of days. I mean, I have a, a, a job where I'm not, it's not very um, heavy exertion. I work on computers. So, so anyways, um, I could do it and I could work from home. That's one good thing about the pandemic um, is that, you know, I was able to work from home and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, so the catheter is an irritation, but I, I wouldn't let it, you know, deter anyone from action. I, I agree with you. And a good story with the nurse. Uh, mine did something very similar to me. Leakage and incontinence are considered two of the greatest risk with surgery. I'm doing great in both categories. Occasionally, I dribble. Uh, sometimes I think that's a result of just aging anyhow, because I'm almost eight years since the surgery. And and I have to be careful with tea. Green tea is a strange impact on my urinary tract. And I do drink alcohol every once in a while. And I have to be careful. It, it seems I can't hold my gin. How have you fared in this category of side so, effects? You know, um, I would say that, that that was a bit of a struggle for me. And I went and saw uh, a urology Austin specialist. I don't know exactly what they're called, but um, they're kind of like um, physical therapists, but for urinary control. And so I didn't have a big problem with it, but I had some. And so I went and, and saw those, those that lady a few times, and she gave me some, some exercises. I, I'm not sure if they're the same thing as Kegels or they're just very similar to it, but they, they, they give you a chance to rebuild your muscles. One of the things that wasn't clear to me before I had the surgery, but I learned afterwards is that, you know, um, there's like, um, control valves in your urinary tract. And for men, there's three of them. 
um, and two of them are on the prostate itself. So when you have prostate surgery, two out of three of those valves get removed. Um, and so uh, it took me a while to to regain that. And I I would put myself in the same category that, you know, I'm not f- perfect in that situation. You know, um, I don't drink alcohol, but uh, I do drink coffee and tea. And, and I have to pay attention to not drink a lot of fluids before I go to sleep. And, and I have to pay some attention to it. Um, and, and I, you know, I also, when I need to use the, 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 the toilet, I go use the toilet. I don't, I don't try to, uh, you know, hold it longer than, than what I can possibly avoid, but it hasn't been any kind of a life changer for me. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I when I was younger and I I loved to drive and travel around. I used to only stop when we had to get more fuel because I could hold uh, like you now if I need to uh, to relieve myself I'll pull over and I even carry a bottle in the truck. I don't want to run the risk. Another subject that concerns a lot of men is what we call erectile dysfunction. That becomes an issue as we age naturally. Uh, I did okay with that as well after the surgery. Uh, Going into it, I was told for both incontinence, leakage, and erectile dysfunction, how you are before the surgery and the kind of physical shape you're in has a lot to do with your outcome. So, And I was in very good physical shape, so that helped me. Uh, How has that department gone for you, Michael? So... Um, it, it's been somewhat of a challenge for a few different reasons. Um, so first of all, I'll say that the good news is, is that I'm in a, you know, I'm married and I have a very uh, loving and understanding wife. And I think that helps. I, it, you know, I, I had a friend that, that um, had a prostate cancer scare. He didn't end up having to have surgery. He didn't have to do anything. But um, he was scared and he was just going through a divorce. So um, I think if you're in a committed and, and loving relationship with a patient wife or girlfriend, whatever, it's less of a scare because part of it is mental. Um, and, you know, part of it is physical. I'm diabetic, which, you know, is a disadvantage in this scenario also. And I'm, you know, I'm not old, but I'm getting older. So I had some challenges in that, and, and it's taken a while to recover. Uh, but I've also taken advantage of some of the different medic- medicines that are available. You know, I've done exercises with the a physical therapist. I'm going to call her that. It could be named something different. But, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm still uh, active. I wouldn't change what I did based on that, that subject. But if I was single, it might be more of an issue for me. And the other thing that, that I don't know if everybody knows it or not, but after you've had your prostate removed, you don't ejaculate. And so, you know, there's no way you can get somebody pregnant after that. So depending on what your age is and your, you know, your family planning, you know, like if you plan to have children, you'd have to think really hard about what you did and maybe the different ways that you did it. Because if you have a, a RALP, you won't be having any more natural children. Good comments. Thank you for that. Perhaps lastly, about our experiences 
after we go through the diagnosis and the difficult steps in that and recover from the surgery and move beyond the catheter and leakage and our, our sexual lifestyles, the big thing that hangs over all of us is what they medically call recurrence, that the cancer is still there. Uh, recurrence suggests it comes back. Certainly after you've had your prostate removed, if cancer remains, as it did with me, it's not recurring. It was always there. It had actually gotten out. How are you faring with that? And how long has it been since your surgery? So it was February 2021 when I had the surgery. So it's over two years. I have not had any reoccurrence. Um, I'm due to go get another checkup soon. Um, but they basically gave me, you know, they never they never say that you're cured, right? Nobody ever will, no doctor will ever say that because they don't want to be uh, on the hook for having told you that. But they, they basically said that after the surgery, they did a, a biopsy, you know, like a, uh, I don't know what you call it, but they cut it into slices. They did a more serious biopsy, like they, they checked the entire prostate. And they said that it was worse than what they thought also, kind of like what you had said. And they also said that they believed that it had not escaped the prostate uh, based on anything that they could see. You know, you you got to go get your checkups. Um, you can get, you know, PSA tests. And, and Keith, you can talk a little bit about the, the, the super high sensitivity ones that you recommend. Um, which I have done that also, but you go and you get a PSA test and, you know, then you take the results into the, the doctor and they say, okay, you're fine. I had a, I had a bit of a scare that turned out to be a medical error, you know, a year and a half or so after I had done it, they sent me to get a test. I went to just, I just got a regular, say standard PSA test, which is different than what you recommend. And so anyways, I went in there, actually, they called me and they said, yeah, it's bad news. And, you know, what we saw doesn't look good. And the numbers that they said, you know, let's put it this way. That night when I went to sleep, you know, I was holding my wife and, you know, I was making my plans of what I had to do to, you know, for her to be taken care of paperwork wise and, you know, getting your effects in order, your affairs in order. And so uh, I spoke with you and you recommended a, a second um, test from another lab, um, which is one that you use and you can recommend them if you want. But I went and got that that day. So, I, or sorry, the next day I, I went in the morning and I had the results before the end of that day. And the first people had made a mistake. And so anyways, I called the doctor and I'm like, look, I went to a different uh, lab and I had them do it and I had the the very sensitive test run and they said there's no increase and they're like oh okay well that's good news but I think it would be best if you go and get one more test from the original lab which I did and that one was also fine so it was it, they literally made a mistake I don't know if they got you know the the sample was contaminated or the lab person made a mistake, or there was a, you know, a mislabeling or something that occurred. But it's like I went through a day thinking that I was, you know, going to be checking out soon, um, because if it comes, if you have high PSA after you've had a, a RELP, 
it's not good news at all because you shouldn't have any uh, PSA at that point. So anyways, I'm a little different from what I went through in all these things. In other words, you know, I have been up to the precipice where, you know, I said, okay, well, I've got cancer. I have to do something. And then I was up to the precipice again where it's like, oh, boy, the cancer came back. And it turned out they were wrong. And one thing that you said kind of stuck with me. And you're like, look, don't panic. Go get a second opinion. Just like people win the lottery, sometimes people get, you know, bad, bad medical tests. It's really was just true, right? You always want to get a second opinion of anything that is this level of critical. I'm like I said, I'm due for another one. I'm going to go get the test done ahead of time with the very uh, sensitive test. And I'm going to have that one done independently. I'm going to pay for it. It's not very expensive. I'm going to pay for that. And then I'll do whatever the doctor wants me to do. But I'm going to have that done ahead of time, not after the the question was, was has arose. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing all of that. The, the discussion of what PSA should be after a prostatectomy is full of disparities across the U.S., the guidelines I know to be wrong. The standard laboratory guideline is that the PSA is above 0.2. It's a concern. I test down to the less than 0.01 level. Many doctors don't look that low. But at 0.2, a man's not likely going to have an opportunity for another curative attempt. And I've had two more curative attempts. At my- You're referring to request a test as the online program I use because I travel But they'll use LabCorp, which is a standardized lab, or folks, you can go straight to LabCorp yourself on site, on on a, excuse me, on a website and and order this test. And it's it's about a hundred bucks for the ultra sensitive. And I find it very useful. Occasionally when I see the doctors, I let them run their lab tests. Lab errors are rare. The one thing I've learned is never rely on a single result. I just had my latest round and my number bumped up a little bit, but I'm at the 0.3x range, so it's really quite low. But I'm going to go back in two weeks and check again to see if I've got an uptick. One last thing, Michael, to ask you before we close out, I'm thinking about this because I like how you share things. So there's a lot spoken about how uncomfortable the digital rectal exam, the finger up the bum is, and the biopsy, which is a bigger device up the bum. Looking back, now that you've struggled with cancer and all that comes with it, what do you think of those two diagnostic techniques? Overwhelming or should men just move through them? Um, I think that they're critical to do. The only thing that I would say different is I would have pushed and I would have paid for a, a MRI-guided exam because um, both the finger the device is basically a set of little needles that take cores out of sections of your your prostate. They are not perfect. They're functional and they're valuable and they give you guidance, but they don't give you answers. They help you know that you have to ask more questions in my mind. But I would have pushed to get the MRI guided version. I don't think it would have changed anything in my particular case other than it may have given me more information about how serious it was. That's my only recommendation. I wouldn't fear either one of them. It's just, you know, like I said, it's a mild discomfort. It's nothing to worry about. Well said. Folks, for my closing rift, here in the U.S., primary treatment selection is no easier today 
than it was for me back in 2015. In fact, I think it may be more difficult. The good news is men have many treatment options and more today than I had, but the volume of disparate information and misinformation has increased. Marketing campaigns often disguised as medical papers on social media sites using captivating images, very good looking models, and various beneficial claims over science get in our way. And the fear exploitations around surgery have not lessened. And I hope Michael and I have helped you understand surgery a little bit better. We face a most challenging time in making our decisions on what to do. I did find the multi-parametric MRI prior to my biopsy, genomic testing, second and even third biopsy pathology opinions critical. It's unconscionable to me that, that the healthcare system does not fully support the use of all the investigative tools and the multiple medical consultations. So men, as you work through your own treatment selection process, balance your focus on a curative outcome. Michael, as we wrap up, thank you very much for your excellent contribution. Do you have any final thoughts? I just would say thank you to you. Uh, you are a light and a lot of darkness. And, uh, you know, you, you're not a doctor, but you're very knowledgeable and you've spent the the time to do the research to be a, you know a good patient and to help other people be a good patient and i just thank you for the the you know the work that you've done and how it's helped people including me that's very kind of you michael thank you again thank you so much for joining us today all the best to you and to your lovely wife and all the best to all of us and now because it is necessary i shall read a statement from my book that has been slightly edited for this podcast series. Please do listen to the end. If you are in need of expert medical advice or assistance, you should seek it from a source or physician of your choice. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking professional medical advice because of something you hear in this podcast. This podcast is about the host and his guests' medical journeys with prostate cancer. The listener is advised that the host and his patient guest are not medically trained. The podcast does not provide medical, psychological, financial, or other professional advice or services, and it is not intended or should be considered a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The host has not received any remuneration for mentioning any tests, positions, institutions, products, or procedures. The hosts and guest references are provided for information purposes only and do not constitute endorsement of any product, medical procedure, website, or other information sources. Reliance on any information provided by the host or his guest in this podcast is solely at your own risk. With that out of the way, I welcome you to subscribe to the podcast series and to reach out to me if you like on my author website, www.sheeporwolfcancer.com. My social media presence is primarily on Facebook at Prostate Cancer Sheep or Wolf. And you can learn more about my book on Amazon as well as other book resellers. Thank you for listening and all the best to all of us. In closing, Momento Mori, just not from prostate cancer. Thank you.